This is Functional and Fabulous, the omni-channel podcast, where we unbox tales of online retail and digital transformation. In this episode, Jer quotes from the classics... Hiya! <laughs> Wax on! Wax on! Our guest is too impressive. He's a recognised speaker offering services and strategic planning, marketing, actually too many services to name. Gordon explains technology... If they do uh, their flashy out. thing... And the episode is boarded by pirates. The guy, arr, the guy, yeah, the guy in the back of the ship with the, <laughs> the, the parrot on his shoulder. This episode of Functional and Fabulous is brought to you with pride by Studio 49, retail e-commerce experts, omni-channel growth consultants, and cut-through performance marketing specialists. Studio 49, where your digital retail success is built. You're very welcome to a, another episode of Functional and Fabulous. And we're joined here today with our guest, uh, Rich Chappell. Rich, it's great to see you. Good morning, guys. How are you both? Hi, Rich. Beyond excited to have you on the podcast this morning. Yeah, thank you. Me too. I can't wait to get into it. So um, just a little bit about uh, Rich's background. Uh, Rich is a seasoned growth and strategy expert known for grow- growing three unicorn companies, Gymshark, the Hook Group Ingenuity and Play.com to serious scale and profitably. He is co-founder and chief growth officer of the Growth Foundation, an organization that provides high potential businesses with the right tools to grow across all their foundations from e-commerce to talent. He's a recognized speaker offering services and strategic planning, marketing, actually too many services to name. So I'm just going to go straight to his <laughs> doing a great job here. Yeah, I keep going. It's great. Superpower. <laughs> Clarity of proposition, and that's something that we're really looking to get into today. It's one of his superpowers. Rich, it's, it's absolutely fantastic to have you here. Thank you so much. Yeah, looking forward to it. So I suppose just to kind of kick off, you know, Chief Growth Officer um, at the Growth Foundation, you must be the growingest growing person. That's that... a lot of growing, yeah. Rich. <laughs> absolutely. So let me deconstruct that because maybe some of your listeners have found as well, you sort of start to see the word growth coming up in sort of um, individual or sort of role titles, you know, I've seen, actually we've hired a couple of chief growth officers and uh, growth managers. And, but ultimately the way that that my purpose and responsibility at Growth Foundation sort of um, sits across two functions, actually it's product. So the way we talk about products is, you know, the purpose of a product team is to source or create um, amazing wow products that your target audience and customers love and talk about and, and so I've got a responsibility for that here in terms of for our client base, making sure that we um, we, we, we create those products and services. And then um, the second one, uh, second function I look after here is actually brand. So it's the, you know, the brand purpose is really ultimately overtly artistic and emotional. It's storytelling. It's that thought leadership. It's getting people to fall in love with you. And when I say people, our target audience. So that's, they're the two functions I look after here. Because I suppose we're called the Growth Foundation, it's all about the product and the brand that we work with in our clients. If I think about the you know the chief growth officers or growth roles that we we hire into perhaps e-commerce businesses, it's usually slightly lower funnel than that. It's much more around the performance marketing and traffic and mm-hmm. trading and conversion rate optimization of, of the stores typically. Um, and I think yeah, it's great uh, that um, you know not alone are you um, working on the growth for your clients, but you also have to uh, imbibe your own medicine <laughs> and basically make your own brand grow. Yeah, we, we talk about quite frequently, we need to grow foundation ourselves here at this moment because we, we go through all the same growing pains and joys of, of our clients as well, right? Um, yeah. And it's a bit like the analogy, you know, I don't know if you guys have got mates who are in the building trade, 
quite often they're brilliant at building houses for their clients and actually when you go around to their place there's still a radiator hanging off the wall yep. and the decorating needs doing because you don't spend enough time on your own thing so we, we, we obviously proactively and quite consciously make sure we're sort of running our own business through our framework and the real shoes problem yeah exactly that yeah yeah we 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 only uh relaunched our website last week um as as a web you know a web design web development agency um we had the world's most overcomplicated incredibly hard to use bleeding edge uh um, website previously and uh it took us an awful lot to kind of come back around and say right look what would we have done for clients we'd have totally simplified yeah, this yeah we'd have built it in something yeah. like shopify so that's what Take we're going to do yeah, taking your own medicine, absolutely. Exactly. So, what, Chief Growth Officer, what does that mean for you? Like, when you're looking, you, you mentioned there that you um, hired a, a couple of chief, chief Growth Officers. What are you looking for? What kind of person? Well, I suppose there's two things to deconstruct there. Chief um, usually means, or I suppose director, is that you have a, I suppose, permission or expected by, let's say, the board to be responsible for um, direction and strategy, you know, and the way that we... And I talk about that. That's the the, the decisions. Uh, probably we could dive into this a little bit more around that clarity and, and purpose of where to play and how to win of the brand. So we we sort of deconstruct strategy into sort of again a rational and emotional sides of that one thing. So on the rational side, where to play, which is which products you do and don't source and make, which target audiences you do and do not um, try and attract, which sales channels you sell through, are you 100% D to C, are you, you know, multi-channel, you might have some Amazon and Marketplace, or have you got wholesaling as well? And then geography, you know, are you a, 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 an island-only brand, or are you trying to perhaps, you know, build in Ireland and then scale out into the UK and, and, and to the US and Europe? So you'd expect your chief, probably in any role in the business, if they're in a, a commercial one, operational finance, to have some experience in, certain, in terms of, I suppose, informing the decision that the board would make around those things that you do and don't do. So that's the chief part. And then I suppose growth ultimately directly links to demand creation, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And that's probably a combination of <clears throat> having some influence over actually the where to play elements, which is, you know, what products, how good are they? What's the offer architecture and the value proposition? Well, how do we turn up? And this is, comes back to the second side of the strategies, like the how to win. That's the emotional side. It's all the things you say and how you say them, when you say them, when you don't. It's all those elements. And obviously then it probably covers then the marketing, amplifying your message and your product and brand through paid media, CRM, the trading, you know, the point of sale itself. So the website. So there's an element of those things effectively. And actually when I say in terms of leadership here within Growth Foundation, I have a very much a kind of clarity around products and brand. But when I'm talking to a founder of, let's say, a 10 million euro scale up business, um, that they expect me to influence and give a sense of all of those demand sort of functions in the business. And you probably have, I suppose, slightly less permission to be getting really stuck into perhaps then you know, the operational or the foundations, right, which are finance, technology, sort of insight, those kind of things, right? It, you know, it's, it's very demand-led. And can you tell us, Rich, you mentioned like 10 million euro sort of size businesses. Yeah. Are, are, is that the kind of sweet spot for, for the businesses that you work with and the businesses that you help? Like, when yeah, is the well, right time to come and yeah. talk to the Growth Foundation? That I suppose that point, and it depends on average order value, right? Because obviously, if you're selling, um, you know, say beds or mattresses or very high AOV uh, type of products, um, it may be that you're already up there. Actually, it's probably around. We look more a little bit more at sort of team size, and actually, the I suppose how the founder is thinking. So usually, the perfect time to speak to us will be when a founder's perhaps been, and the, typically we find that they're now sort of product visionaries. 
they've found the need for a product that they couldn't find in the market. They decide to speculate, take some risk, and they're still working in a bedroom. Perhaps, you know, family and friends are helping them get going. And then there's a moment, an inflection point when they think, right, I can see this has got an opportunity greater than a lifestyle business. This could be um, a brand that has some legacy or actually could have some material value for me in the future. Maybe I want to sell it to, uh, you know, a competitor or I could, you know, or float it in the future. Who knows what, what comes down the line? But they they realize there's sort of more potential in in the product or the service that they've created. And it's usually at that point where they think they're aware that there are known unknowns. I know these things need to happen, but I don't know how to do them. Or, um, and obviously they won't know the unknown unknowns, but obviously a good trigger would be that there's things that I know I need to do. I've got no idea how to approach them. And, and I've, you know, I'm paralyzed by choice. I'm paralyzed by not having pattern recognition. And also probably there's an element where they start to think about professionalizing the organization. So I'm going to make my first two, three, four hires, probably in areas that I don't enjoy doing. So it might be that again, they're a product visionary. I love working on products. Actually, I hate doing the finance. I hate, I'm not, I don't enjoy doing the performance marketing, et cetera. Right. And then I'm going to start to hire. So that's probably a great time to talk to us. I suppose if you're slightly larger and maybe again, we sort of have, that might be first inflection point, getting out of the bedroom into that first sort of, um, let's say m- maturing the business with a bit more sophistication. There's usually another inflection point once you, it's the couple of years after you've done that first move. And then it's like, great, this is working, but uh, I maybe made some wrong calls on the hires I made. I've got, I'm actually paralyzed by the choice I have in strategy. I'll, I want to go into different countries, but I don't know where to go. But I think I've got the team now in place to be able to start executing some of that stuff. So that's a really good time as well um, for us to sort of interact. And if we you... were to, sorry, oh. sorry Gordon, if we were to talk about um, one of the uh, businesses that you, uh, you're well known for working with, Gymshark, was that the kind of situation they were in, This this uh, that paralyzed, you know, uh, paralysis of choice? and trying to figure out what they do next and and how to grow their business was that the same was that what what they were experiencing yeah to some degree yes and one of the things we've got a growth foundation is we look through sort of two very different binoculars or lenses um when we sort of get to meet a business um and that's one around i suppose assessing the clarity of strategy so how i suppose confident and rigorous are the decisions that the founders or the senior leadership team have made on those where to plays and how to wins and at Gymshark at that time, I think probably there was ambition to do a lot. So it was that sort of not quite paralysis of choice, but almost like trying to do all of them at once yeah. and kind of thinking, right, which ones perhaps do we need to focus on first? What and kind do of things were they looking on? at? Um, had they gone down? Um, it would have been or? things like, I suppose, and obviously the brand is famous for like functional training and, and weightlifting, for example. So could we go into CrossFit or running or swimming or other kind of gym led categories or even potentially? Uh, when you think about product, is it footwear? Is it sports nutrition? Is it meal prep? Is it all the other things, you know, that would potentially take share of an active gym goer's wallet? You know, how could you take a greater share of that? There was um, some paralysis around, I suppose, geography. The business was brilliantly launched with Ben and Lewis thinking about, um, you know, we're a glo- this is a global opportunity and Shopify can effectively reach all parts of the to the world when they launched. And it was kind of, I to say, you know, they were proactively hunting sort of customers in the UK and the US and, and, but actually rest of world was passive. But when you think operationally, okay, it's great that we can say we've shipped to over 150 countries. When you sort of, you know, look from the bottom up in the PL operationally, hang that, that package to that far east location that we've sent three or four times, maybe two of them have returned because our sizing doesn't quite work for consumers in that part of the world, um, has been sent back. You know, we would have, we've, we've spent $400 shipping that. To and from that place so it's those kind of decisions around 
do you know what? Maybe we should say we'll proactively hunt these two countries. These will be passive and will be open because they, they're actually profitable when we do sell to customers in those places. And then the long tail of the rest of the 180 countries in the planet will just effectively switch off. So there's two um, kinds and- of things going on there, isn't there? There's clarity around the proposition of the yeah, what are we selling? Are we pushing into adjacent categories? And yeah. then the where are we going to sell that? And yeah, I and it's where, and then the target audience is the other one. And and this is where they had actually really rigor, loads of rigor and clarity. It would be to young, already in the gym people. So when I met Ben, and this hopefully make your uh, listeners giggle a little bit. I remember, you know, in my late thirties when I meet him, I'm slightly more timber around my waist when I when I went, met them for the first time, and actually meeting them inspired me to get into better shape. Actually. Um, I said, you know, guys, could would you be happy for me to wear Gymshark uh, products? And they're like, absolutely not. You're too old and you're too fat. <laughs> That's quite blunt. Was, yeah, very. <laughs> but the clarity of, I suppose, of let me deconstruct that because it sound, might sound a bit um, arrogant in some some way. But actually, I suppose the age thing is really interesting in terms of they had the clarity of servicing consumers that were like them. So in the in their early twenties who were already, you know, in the gym already. And I think the other point around that kind of you're too fat because I'm conscious that could sound, well, actually, look, that's not very inclusive. And, you know, we've all got um, different things going on in terms of managing our weight and things like that. But actually, when I deconstruct that, it was you haven't earned the right to wear the brand in our view. You know, the people who wear our brand, this is in the early days, you know, very much in the early adopter days of the brand where they were the individuals that actually took a proactive choice to go to the gym probably five days a week and they would train for a couple of hours every time they went. It was seen as a, I think, in, and hopefully still is today, a badge of honor by wearing that, you know, that icon. On, it's you know, credible product for credible, regular gym yeah, users. So it, that, that, and that's, that's a really interesting thing to try and protect as you do grow and you want to sort of, again, you know, reach more consumers who perhaps quite aren't, maybe aren't as active when they're training. But that clarity that they had there was 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 absolutely um, um, key and and clear. So that know, when they customer decision there, Rich, that's almost as important as, or, or probably as important as the adjacency um, yes. discussion. So you, you're kind of, do we push into different categories, or do we push into different age groups or different activity levels? Yeah. And even within age, if you think about that, the way, and I suppose actually there's some great, I suppose one of the things actually I'll quote something i heard from stephen bartlett on dragon's den i'm not sure if you guys get the the, the uk bbc dragon's den we, where we you know are stephen but, bartlett um, both, uh, yeah and yeah. he he said something that was a, that i suppose i've encountered and, and encouraged as well which is like in a very crowded market if you want to disrupt you know your that strategy and those decisions you make on the where to play should be needle thin yeah that that will that will allow you then perhaps to really service a you know, very narrow set of consumers. Because if you think about, you know, 16 to 24 year olds, you've already taken a lot of the addressable market away as, as the population. We've now said who are in the gym, we've gone down again, who are actually only in the weights area of the gym, we've gone down again. And actually there's another divide that we kind of identified, which was the customers that we were really keen to sort of, I suppose, engage and build communities around were the ones that actually like, with the extroverts in the gym, they were the ones that would like look training in front of the mirror, they would like, you know, it was a it was a social space to build relationships with other gym goers. And then there's a, you know, there's another group who are in the weight area of the gym who are, you know, hoods up, headphones on, or on their own. This is a very personal space. It's an introverted sort of experience. So we've and, gone down from like millions to, you know, hundreds of thousands down to 
maybe 100,000, 10,000. It was like, you know, that kind of factoring down and then building a product that absolutely delighted them. And, and not only products, content, creative, storytelling, um, all that good stuff for a, quite a, a needle-thin yeah. target audience. And would you have, like, a, an example of, let's say, a decision they made that under other circumstances might seem a little bit bad, but uh, in hindsight, okay, this yeah. is this was exactly the right There's thing. There's quite a few, but I'm conscious of, like, you know, privileged information and things like that. So <laughs> let, let me give you one that, that would come to life, but we'll see with, you know, what, what we know. So um, let me give you sort of a sense of some of the clarity around the playbook. So... You know that that other kind of cha- um, sort of fourth limb of that where to play was not discussed yet, actually, which was channel. The business made a proactive and conscious choice to be a hundred percent direct to consumer online only. And what could feel unusual is that as we were building a bit of leverage and gaining some traction and attention, we would be approached by very famous sort of um, you know uh, fashion retail businesses, and they would be very direct in terms of here's a very large you know seven eight figure purchase order if we can have uh your brand in our store yeah there would be a lot of temptation to just yeah. to oh, just push into yeah. wholesale because of the reach that certain, yeah and then let me certain certain sports that a little retailers bit more as well because there's an yeah so before the clarity of that that decision the business was losing some let's say return on energy was low on that subject because you kept negotiating it should we shouldn't we should we do it what are the pros and cons? And we made that clarity of like, no, you know, while we can create profitable demand, you know, direct to consumer models are phenomenal. They're cash sort of generative and positive usually. You know, you get your cash settled within a few days, you're paying your suppliers on maybe 30, 60, 90 days, you own your customer and the relationship with them directly and the insight it gives you, you know, all those things. Where as soon as you start to get, let's say, hooked on the wholesale drugs, which for some brands are is the right channel for them. You, you lose a lot of that visibility, insight. You know, you become a negative cash model, all that other good stuff, right? So, um, but actually, th- that clarity around was once we knew that when that those sort of invitations would come over by an email, it was you know a thirty second thanks very much, great, we're, we're delighted to be asked, but no thank you, yeah. and then that energy can be used then on on that sort of you know, again, so tactically di- executing where we should be. You know, it must have been so difficult for a, a founder to kind of uh, write those emails. You know. Um... Thank you very much. We're delighted to be asked by such a large retailer, but we're going to say no because uh, you know you're you know what that means. You know you're turning your turning away quite a substantial potential. Yeah, and it's an interesting psychology there, isn't it? It's a bit of the cat and mouse there because yep. actually they just want you even more. Yeah, yeah. So they would come back a month later and say, "Have you changed your mind?" And you'd be just building your leverage. And actually, I suppose for that business, while we would continue to grow, you know grow the right way effectively that we just felt like we were building more power and leverage in that opportunity yeah. when we needed it so when it's a great it example a when we needed to pull it yeah, yeah you know? it's a great it's a great example though because you can feel the temptation so gymshark now have opened up a store in regent street did you have any thoughts about that i've actually been there visited it um just as it was before it opened and just after i mean it's a phenomenal place if you get the chance to go absolutely get yep. down there some of the innovation in Physical retail is phenomenal. They've got kind of, you know, um, racking that can move in and out of the ceiling yep. to do um, to turn the space into a, a retail environment, back to a gym studio, etc. They've, they've worked very closely with Shopify, I think, to work on incredible point of sale. So again, you know, it's not queuing at a till station. You've got that kind of more Apple experience to go mm. and buy with people on the move on on uh, on, on the shop floor, etc. It still um, stays very true to that target customer. Yeah, that uh, yeah, originated. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I think, I suppose, if if I had, I suppose, a similar budget and it was my choice to make only, 
I think it would have been interesting to look at um, perhaps, a, you know, actually going perhaps more gym first versus retail first and sort of creating epic kind of... Um, the Gymshock uh, gym experience. Kind of mecha style, apologies for using that word, you know, sort of, uh, sort of places that you go on a pilgrimage to go and train in. And then kind of retail, perhaps more like a sort of like a like a gold gym Disney experience, right? Which is I'm going to go and enjoy and get the dopamine from training, and Mm. then the gift shops on the way out, sort of thing, which could be really interesting. And who knows, that might be something those guys are considering. Um, And the other thing, whenever I was sort of thinking about, you know, where the brand, if I again was sort of really ideating and blue skying, is where that brand could go outside of retail. If you look at sort of being, I sort of took some inspiration from what the guys at like Aston Martin and some of the luxury car brands are doing. They're creating kind of apartment blocks and places to live that are associated to the brand. You know, so the Aston Martin team are des- doing the interior design of these very exclusive apartments in Miami and Dubai. And you can you know, bring your Aston Martin up in the middle of the building and park it outside your apartment with a window to look at your car. <laughs> there could be some interesting ways. You imagine if you sort of you said, right, what could we do in the future with that brand in terms of, again, really hitting the wants and needs of that very quite narrow group of consumers um, in terms of effectively getting more of their wallet share. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. That would really make gym life real life, wouldn't it? Yes. And, so, and it uh, is for those individuals, yeah. So we talked a bit about, uh, obviously, you know, uh, Gymshark wasn't the only uh, highlight. Um, you, you've, you, do you want to tell us a little bit about the hot group um, and um, the kinds of things? Yeah, very, very different proposition. Mm. Yeah, I joined the hut group in 2009, so it's formative years. Um, it was a, a, a business then that was effectively a exclusively a, a white label e-commerce platform. So we were <clears throat> powering the entertainment retail, online retail stores for the likes of Asda and and other general merchandisers who were perhaps struggling and having some of their online market share taken from the likes of play.com and Amazon. And actually play was my previous mm. employer. So my experience in play was the thing that kind of gave me the opportunity at the hut group. Um, and over the time I was there, my first couple of years there, I was, I suppose actually what would be called growth. Now I was responsible because we called it e-commerce director, but it was responsible for demand creation. Um, and then had obviously a, a stakeholding in sort of uh, product to some degree, but much more then around own, owning content, performance marketing, trading and conversion rate optimization. Um, and then as we, um, I suppose, demonstrated that we could start to grow more profitably and faster through myself and a few other guys from Play joined. And again, we started to, again, that business was in that inflection point of hiring experienced um, people into its business. We we're able to sort of yeah, up, upturn the the, uh, the the demand generation. We're able then to talk to investors to say, we know we've got a formula for growth, put some money in, and we're going to use that to then uh, acquire, um, I suppose, more friendly, perfect for e-commerce sort of brands uh, or product categories, which, you know, sports nutrition, which is high frequency, high um, gross margin, low return rate, easy to manage operationally effectively. Uh, likewise beauty it's in the same place so we kind of designed that what would be perfect if you had an e-commerce platform end-to-end which the hut group owns it's a full first party platform end-to-end like well if we design if we could put anything through this it would be things that meet those criteria so that was the migration from cds into very very different categories yes but still ticking those boxes of high frequency low return Kind of would fit through a letterbox, yeah. obviously. A, yeah, small, a big small tub. one one hand pick was the kind of the thing we used to talk about. So not not two hand picks. Yep, yep, yeah. So earlier on, we started out. We were talking a little bit about uh, strategy. You mentioned uh, some of the things you're looking at. Uh, you know, where to play, how to win. 
which products yeah. to which channels to which audiences. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's kind of, let's say, the high level um, from a tactical point of view. What are the things that you're looking at on a day to day basis or a quarter to quarter basis to to help yeah. um, push that strategy forward? I suppose the way that we look at that, so we think about it sequencing into tactics, actions and control. So. Um, again, to maybe to bring that to life in the minds of the listener, if you think about the strategy, and we'll talk about fitness a bit, haven't we? So imagine you think to yourself, oh, I'd like to feel a bit fitter, a bit thinner. That's the Hollywood version of myself in your head. So that's like the mission and the vision you have in your head. The objective might be, you know, lose 10 kilograms by the 1st of June, ready for the summer. Um, and then the strategy would be diet. When you deconstruct that would be move more, eat better. And that's the rule, the immutable rule that never changes. That's that, you know, that clarity of, of, of the rule. Tactically, then, depending on the individual, and this is obviously in brackets, depending on the company, you might say, well, for me, I love running, I love swimming, um, but I'm going to join a gym as well. I'm going to get a personal trainer, stop eating beige food. And they're the, the tactics. And then when you come down another level into actions, well, if you say, well, I'm going to join the gym, I've actually got to go, sign up, turn up train they're the actions and i suppose then the control is the measurement right and the measurements are am i on track so i said am i losing a kilogram a week consistently no i'm not actually i stopped oh yeah i fell off the wagon and had a load of drinks with my mates during the middle of the week mm. um i'm feeling a bit tired whatever right so that's the thing that feeds back into and a brilliant i suppose way of actually talking about tactically having to ensuring tactics actions and and are changed by default Think about when COVID came, and if you're using this analogy, I can't go to the gym anymore. I can't meet my personal trainer. I'm not allowed to go to the swimming pool. What am I going to do? Right. The tactic now is to run up and down the stairs. It's to jump around in front of the TV with Joe Wicks. It's, but my tactics changed based on a, a macro situation yep. that, 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 that changed. So that's kind of the framework of thinking like that. And then I suppose the way that we do that with our clients when we're talking to them about how to understand the different tactics across the business, and they vary massively, don't they? Because if you're in the product function, what are the tactics you're deploying are very different to the ones in the customer service team, right? Just world, worlds apart. So we will group um, the company into 10 functions. The first five I'm going to read out are think of them as like vertical pillars in your head. So think about five vertical pillars and think of customers moving through across these pillars from left to right. So you've got product, brand, uh, marketing, trading and operations and operations is like that fulfillment and customer service. So they customers move through that journey yep. and then what allows those pillars to stand up above the ground is then the foundations underneath clue in our name growth foundation mm-hmm. they are the horizontal kind of foundations that layer up to support those pillars so you've got um from the ground moving to the floor there is insight tech finance people and executive so we will then sort of you know understand those things and then you can clearly articulate where your people are and where you think about what's the purpose of these functions so product we've already discussed like making and sourcing awesome products that my target audience love brand is storytelling getting people to fall in love with me operations deliver the promise that we make to our customers you know finance make sure we've got enough money to do the things we want to do etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's yeah. kind of that high level right and how we think about things and then i suppose tactically though if i think about you were talking about some of those things that we do you know that kind of came back to some of the, the sort of the playbook thing it would be um, if you understood, like for example, in Gymshark, we're we're about conditioning and the journey of becoming a the best version of yourself. And one of the things that we you know we thought about as well is that that we understood that that's where we play and how we win is in that clarity of that conditioning. It would be tactically we have an opportunity to sponsor a football team. They phoned us up and said, "Do you want to go on the shirts of a Premier League football team?" You're like, 
no, we don't. We're not where the goals are scored. Could we tell stories about how that Premier League player went from grassroots into the team? That's where we'd like to work tactically with you. And then you can sort of see the guy, the sponsorship sales guy at the football team scratching they're going, ah, no, we don't, we can't, I don't have a package to sell you. <laughs> I don't have a billboard. Yep. And then, but that, and then that takes a bit more energy, which actually we have because we're not considering should we go and sell to a marketplace or not. We've got some energy now to go, well, look, why don't we work a bit harder on this and see if we could secure some storytelling from, with your, with your uh, players, for example. So that, that's kind of how we sort of, the hierarchy of that structure That's, works. Uh, you're, you're not about where the goals are scored, you're about the journey. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. sitting here grinning, listening to all of that, Rich, because <laughs> anybody that's ever done any work with me will have heard me bang on relentlessly about the SOSTAC planning framework. Yeah, you can see I've kind of <laughs> squashed it around what we do, absolutely. But what, I'm, what I really love to hear is the clarity on... Uh, your vertical and your horizontal pillars for delivering that at a tactical level. I think the first bit yeah. of the ballot, the battle is having that clarity on, on what your strategy is and then understanding, okay, we, we know where we're going, but what are those things that we're going to do under what headings to deliver against that strategy? And I think this is, this is a really useful takeout for anybody that's listening yeah, because so it keeps manners on everything. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it keep, keeps you real. And actually, again, this is about that return on energy. So I think about, you know, that strategy often can be on a piece of paper in a document that you write down and say, right, where do we play? How do we win? What's our objective? What's our mission, vision? But actually, Gordon, I love the SOSTAT model. But we changed it to actually, I suppose, bastardized it uh, is the right <laughs> way to talk about it. I, it we put a v in it for vision and mission because actually that doesn't exist in sostat you can have situation yep. objective it doesn't mm. talk about purpose enough yeah and then also there's a brilliant model and that where to play how to win that's not something i'm gutted to tell everyone i didn't we haven't created that that's something that png come up with in the 60s um mm. which is it's a phenomenal model in terms of the clarity it brings you um so we've kind of squashed all those frameworks together but yeah, yeah, I, I think one of the things that you talk about, like, you know, some of those things, I suppose, th thinking tactically is, I'm trying to think about like the vertical and the horizontal, some of the things that we will try and work into sort of the taxonomy and language of the of the brands and clients we work with is think about if you are, if you are, let's say the most senior leader in the marketing, and usually it's called the marketing team, I want you to talk about that as a function. It's one of the functions of the business. So you're the leader of the marketing function and the purpose is traffic at best quality, highest quality, highest volume traffic at the lowest cost is your, your purpose. And then think of your team as your peers left to right. So if you're a head of marketing, you've got a head of brand next to you, a head of trading. That's the team when you look left and right across those pillars. That's your team. You mm -hmm. need to work really closely together to align yeah. and collaborate and do all that wonky thinking that you do when you're coming up with the plans and tactics. So the idea of, all right, we know we're a conditioning brand or we know we're a window blinds brand, what do, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Where do, and then what do we want to do then tactically? And you're working left to right collaboratively and then you, I suppose, translate and um, narrate that information back into your function. And we talk a lot about, um, um, you know, this monologue I was talking about, like having your strategy down on a piece of paper, which is all very well, but some of the best businesses that we see that have kind of got themselves up into the 10 20 million euro mark already what they usually have is maybe a bit of luck that one of the founding team or one of the strategic kind of decision makers of the business is a great narrator they're a brilliant storyteller and what they do in every interaction if you're a supplier a partner 
uh, an employee at any level from the very junior to the very senior, that individual is brilliant at keep reminding you and narrating you the plan. Mm. So it gets into the muscle memory of the business. And again, mm -hmm. to think about that for the guys to bring it to life or put your minds back to the Karate Kid movie from the 80s. Mm -hmm. Think of your brand and your, your business as Daniel at the beginning of the movie, the high potential, you know, champion of the future. Mm -hmm. And then you can see where it think of the, <laughs> yeah, you can then think of the strategy actually as Mr. Miyagi, right? So, but Miyagi's the narrator. He's actually not the he's not the strategy himself. He's the narrator. He's the guide. Yeah, he's the guiding light. And actually, what's interesting there's a brilliant book that brought this to life for me called Story Brand. So check that yeah. out. I'm another huge can... fan. That's, that's just another one of my books yeah, that I give tell, out to you, people. This is where it comes from, Gordon. Right. So, and then, but actually, that whole thing of where he's training Daniel in the summer of wax on, wax off, you know, um, wash the cars, paint the fence, scrub the deck. That's getting the strategy into the muscle memory of Daniel, effectively the brand. So that's what you've got to think about is like, okay, I've written down the strategy. What are the techniques now I need to use in my business to get that strategy? So when someone is approached by an unusual question, internally or externally, hey, would you like to sell on Marketplace? Would you like to sponsor a sports team? It's instantly muscle memory yes or no because you've got that clarity of the of the strategy yeah do you Fantastic. find with yeah. with some of the people that you work with if they haven't they haven't got that strategic clarity do you find that you you would then end up working with organizations that are very tactically focused and if you do yeah. how yeah. do you get them to take a step back from being down in the trenches and so think about we, we have a direction? we have a framework which again i can share so maybe you guys can t take a look at the template happy to share this for you and your listeners, actually, we put strategic clarity and rigor on a y-axis. I think of mm -hmm. a quadrant, four squares. You've got the y, um, so the y vertical axis is, is strategy clarity, and then we put tactical capability on the x. So if you are, and you think about then what's the scale of that? Because it's difficult to give it a number. So we actually put needs work right at the bottom to leading edge at the very top, and you and you go through as expected and above average. And we actually will score that based on relatively subjective and peer group knowledge. So when we meet a, let's say, 4 million turnover brand with a team of three, uh, et cetera, it's, the, the scoring is appropriate comparing it to, let's say, the Hut group now who are 2 billion turnover with you know 10,000 employees. It's not appropriate to score them um, on each other. But either way, you can now imagine when we look at a business and we deconstruct strategy, which we have done, which is where to play, how to win, and we deconstruct how to win into actually um, you know, uh, the narrative clarity is one of those. So how good are you at narrating this strategy into the organization? So we score all of those things. That allows me to plot you, let's say, on above average for strategy. And then typically the brands we meet are usually this way around. They have a slightly above average or, or um, uh, strategy and tactical capability along the, the other axis is usually around the needs work and or uh, as expected. And you might find, like I found at Gymshark when I met them, they were leading edge on influencer marketing and earned marketing. Um, it was still quite an immature space, so they weren't particularly sophisticated, but compared to their peers, no one was doing it as well as they were. Um, and then you looked across all the other things you can deconstruct in tactical capability. So how good is, is your organic media? How good is your paid media? And then you deconstruct that again into paid search, paid social display, you know, above the line. You can imagine you can have that all sort of works through CRM, conversion rate optimization, visual merchandising, category management of product, et cetera, that they under-index. That was all that needs work. Tech stack needs work. Insight needs work. And then that kind of gives you a sense of, right, the focus actually is we need to do a bit of work on strategy to bring some more narrative clarity here. 
but actually the focus for the next year is all about upgrading the tactical execution. And then what that does when you balance them, it moves you into the top right-hand quadrant, which is growing the right way, which is what we call that kind of... And that's right almost an ideal starting position. Yeah. Real clarity on what you want to do, where do you want to go, who are you for, and yeah. then you make the decisions tactically on... Yeah, and you think about the what... impact of some of those decisions. So if you yeah. did think, right... I am. I do want to open. It's right for my brand. We've got an everyone brand. It's a mass market proposition. It's quite convenient, low value. It's really appropriate for us to be, let's say, in grocery or physical retail and marketplace. Once that's established, you come then down to tactical capability. You're like, well, who have I got here? Don't have anyone to manage this. I don't have the right technology. Do I have actually enough cash in the bank to now have a negative working cash channel? Although it could be amazing for my marketing because I'm now on the shelf in a thousand pharmacies or whatever, mm. right? So that then it sets those out. If you go around the other way and think, right, I'm going to build my tactical plan and my org first before setting the proposition and the strategy, you're going to, it will, you'll end up again, probably low return on energy and yield. What we've been speaking about, um, Gordon and I work so frequently in all of these areas. Um, it's, it's so interesting, you know, how the, the frameworks, they kind of cross pollinate each other. And sometimes I think the experience that you bring to the whole thing is even just understanding which pieces of the model of the, all of the models that are out there, which pieces you're actually going to bring to the table. Yeah, which one because, the, the most useful within the context. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is, uh, uh, "All models are broken, but some are useful." Um, <laughs> it's that knowing which ones are the ones that actually. Well, and, and actually, I suppose turning it sort of our model on the head slightly as well is that w you you could come this with a very kind of I suppose exclusively model led consultancy. Here are some great models. And you sort of talk about that. I suppose the benefit of what we have in the majority of my team, I've got 25 people at Growth Foundation. Um, only two are, are actually exclusively agency background and they're in my creative team, which I absolutely is fine because actually they're not wedded to the pressure of worrying about money and PL, right? They're just brilliant mm. creative thinkers. Everyone else who has any responsibility near a number has come from a business like a direct-to-consumer e-commerce business. So they can, again, look at the model understand actually that part of that model is brilliant or actually that KPI that we used in my previous life over here is perfect for this or that we've been there and had like I'm sure all your listeners will have is that the highs and lows the dopamine and the serotonin of like the Shopify bell ringing and then mm. not <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah. like it's Saturday morning the you look at the number silence. and go oh man yeah. it's going to be a tough week it's going to be a tough week. you know we've, we've all been there um, and actually yeah so we, we we know so there's I think a lot of things we talk about our values here is that um, unlike other perhaps more, I suppose, uh, established consultancies like the McKinsey's or the Baines or the Big Fours, who can do quite a lot of work on strategy. We've got the pattern recognition and we've been there and, yeah. and the empathy to understand what it feels like to be a a first time founder or, you know, employee number three in a small business or a, a scale up business. We've all we've all been there. It's a unique thing to bring to the table, um, the kind of pragmatic and practical uh, background and experience, not 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 alone the the, the thinking around strategy and understanding yeah. where and why those things are important, but also how to bring that back to the tactical yeah. piece. Because at the end of the day, anybody who's who, who's going to be speaking to you will also want to know, well, that's great. Now, what am I doing tomorrow morning? Like I'm coming into work on Monday. Where, where am I going? And that comes back to the, the tactical pieces that you were talking about earlier on. A question yeah. we, to, to wrap up, because we could be we could speak with you all day, obviously. <laughs> um, but a, a question just to wrap up um, that we've been uh, asking people recently is the uh, what do you feel is the opportunity now in e-commerce for the next 
12 months. I, I know that you've been working with this great little tool, Order Rescue. Um, I, I, I spotted it on LinkedIn. I really like the look of it. Um, I w- let's talk about that so briefly, we'll, we'll but is that also that the biggest little, opportunity? Actually, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, I suppose, opportunity sounds like when you sort of, I suppose, maybe the dictionary definition might go something around finding new maybe tactics or areas for growth. And I think there will always be. So again, if you're out there listening as strategic decision makers or owners of businesses, you should always, you've always got permission to question the decisions you've made. Have I chosen the right audiences? Have I chosen the right products? But my guidance there would be, don't do that in an open environment where your tactical people are. You'll confuse them and you'll lose energy. Think of that ethical pirate captain on a ship. He's in his office, you know, in the captain's at the back of the ship on his own thinking about that he won't be musing that with the crew because mm. just confuse them They're like yep. no i've already told you we're going over here this is why we're going there's a big pot of treasure and maybe he's back in the office thinking there might be a bigger pot of treasure over in that other <laughs> island but i'll keep i'll keep musing that on my own um before telling the crew to get distracted that's one thing i think if you're more tactical opportunity goodness me i think the ease of getting distracted with new things all the time i think just making sure the brilliant basics are in place in everything you do and every function. And that will be really different, but I suppose let's talk about conversion rate optimization. So are you in stock most of the time of the things that people come to you for that you're famous for, you know, the grocery store, bread and milk, or if you're at the home improvement store, it's the white paint and white spirit. Is that in stock all the time, every day? It's really boring, but it's the bread and butter of the business. Yeah, absolutely. Get that sorted before getting distracted with the champagnes and chocolates at the front. and this feels like this year, 2023, it feels like a year of consolidation. I had a bit of poetry recently where I was talking about the North Star and the mists dissipating and all of that. It's still there. Yeah. It's still in the same place. I, I think the opportunity is as well, particularly for pure play e-commerce stores. And this is a message. I've got the luck of, I suppose, my age and when being born when I was. I actually worked in physical retail for the first sort of nine years of my retail career. And one of the things I've tried to do whenever I can, if we have the opportunity, is take pure play e-commerce clients and teams I've had into physical retail environments. Mm -hmm. The disciplines that you need there are obviously very different. It's a bit like, you know, um, you both want to win the race, which is growing your brand and, you know, your revenue through the till. But like physical retail's Formula One driving and e-com is rally driving. A lot of the not the terminology is the same, but the way of winning the race is very different. Yeah. Spend some time like try if you can to go and work in a shop literally spend some time or visit more physical retail environments and take on why have they put that there in the window why are they dressed the end of the aisle there how are they flowing people through this store there's a reason that the grocery stores put bread and milk in the back of the store is because you have to walk past the champagne and chocolates and all the other stuff and you end up with a eight times bigger basket than you would have done anyway and i don't think there's enough content and you know i don't know what you guys think around thinking like physical retailers and applying those techniques and methodologies in an e-com environment in an e-com you're preaching place. to the converted so we my talk man. about this yeah. all the time <laughs> all the well, time. Yeah. Right? like yeah it absolutely has happened and actually that's quite a nice segue to order rescue um because one of the things um we get asked a lot is that should how should i be using voucher codes and promo promo codes hmm. am i using too many should i turn them off and obviously we'd like again one of our methodologies you know we want insight-led decisions or, or to make insight-led we want to have insight-led and informed decisions sorry right when we're making things so we're like well actually let's have a look at and and i don't know how you guys feel when you're in this sort of space but there's not brilliant reporting visibility of actually mm. what's going on with voucher codes at all you can see right how many were used you can see 
um, you know, what you've got live in your in your e-commerce CMS, but actually you don't get any visibility of the interaction of the voucher code box in any e-commerce tool as far as, far as I'm aware. Um, and so we thought, well, it'd be interesting to build some tracking to see actually what's going on with that very small, you know, micro step of the journey to the checkout, yeah. but it's a very sensitive one. We've got people in high intent to buy, they're feeling anxious, uh, all the thing around, you know, is it the right time, you know, that um, anxiety Absolutely. around, I suppose, if, if, if buyer's remorse and all that stuff, right? Yeah. And particularly if you're in a product category, which is quite impulsive, where you see a brilliant piece of content in TikTok or social media, you think, oh, I want that. And you come in and something goes wrong. You're easy, very quick, quick to leave and bounce out of the journey. So we're like, let's have a look at that. And it really surprised us what happened. So we tracked about 2 million checkouts across a number of merchants. And uh, on average, 8% of everyone who enters the checkout will attempt an invalid voucher code and then not convert because it yeah. wasn't valid. You get that invalid code, try again. And what's interesting, if you deconstruct the thought process of that user, is that the the value, they think they've come with a valid deal. So there's either that they've been given it from an influencer, they've found something and they think that that's it. And that group, that the loss of that offer is greater than the benefit of the product that they're about to buy. So they don't convert. Yeah. which is really interesting kind of you know mm -hmm. psychology there of a consumer yeah. so we're thinking like again coming bringing this back to a physical retail store imagine you've got a coupon from the paper that says 10 percent off baked beans today and you've kind of put it in the bottom of your handbag you've walked into the store got your beans in the thing go up to the checkout and the the, the code doesn't scan because it's kind of been screwed up in the in your bag what would happen in a physical retail store i guess most often than not you'd have the checkout associate would say don't worry i've got a copy here on the till Beep. And you'd be on your way mm. very happy. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't happen in e-com. You get invalid code try again. The amount of disappointment, like you say, entirely outweighs the, uh, the the value that the customer thinks they're going to get from the product. It's a, but, it's, and this is, a, this is a consumer. Actually, this is a human psychology yep. thing from, from, I think it's the, the fast and slow thinking guys, and I can't recall their names, those wicked Nobel Prize winning um, psychologists, which was the fear of loss is mm. greater in humans than the, the gain of... The, the, on the other side yeah it, it, it hurts to lose things more than it does to to get mm. you know to win this ties in with yeah. something i saw this week i was reading it on linkedin and it, it was from an seo agency and one of the most common search terms for any brand is brand plus voucher code or brand mm. plus yeah. promo code and i'm sure that's going to be one of the behaviors that's being surfaced here as you get to yeah. the promo box and then it's like right okay i'm going to type in whatever it is I'm shopping for, plus promo code, yeah. and then you're at an inflection point. Yep. Their suggestion to fix that was put all your promo codes on your website, your website which I yeah. thought was quite mm, uh, quite an interestingly dangerous. risky approach. <laughs> and, um... Now, my advice would be install Order Rescue. So what, <laughs> what, what, what it does is effectively it acts like a checkout associate. So if you've got one of the, I call them the chancer, and there's a lot of those, yep. right? So of that 8% who invalid and leave, we believe that does it's merchant dependent and how well they've managed their codes previously, but roughly half are trying it on. They try staff one, two, three, test one, two, three, all that good stuff. And then the, uh, you know, the other guys are genuinely have got a, a genuine code, welcome 10 and their fat thumb on a mobile phone keyboard has typoed it wrong. And then yeah. they leave. So we've built a tool that allows you to configure based on what's typed in. If they're a new customer returning, what's in the basket, you name it, a rescue offer, which can be percentage off gift with purchase, a, a fixed money off. And it acts like a human would do it at all. So, for example, new customer comes in with a very slow moving, high margin item in their basket, mm -hmm. which costs 500 quid and says, yeah. could you do us a deal on this? Um, you might go, yeah, I will do you a deal on that. I need to move that stock on. 
if a returning customer comes in and says, I'd like to buy something you sell loads of, not great margin, you'd be like, no, sorry, you know, move on. Um, and obviously, if they come with the valid code and it just doesn't work, then make it work. That's what the tool does. Brilliant. Rich, thanks for summing all that up. And thank you for joining us this morning. We're out of time. I wish we had another hour to chat to you some more. Um, but it's been an education, which is it's an education for us. I hope it's an education for the listeners. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, likewise. And I mentioned and promised um, some of those resources. So, uh, guys, I'll PDF up those things over to you. And likewise, if anyone wants to reach out, I'm on uh, we're at the growth.foundation. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. So happy to share more and and and, and help your listeners wherever we can. Great. Thanks Fantastic. so much, Rich. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks, great Rich. Stuff. Thanks, guys. Bye. Wasn't Rich great today? I learned tons. And I think the biggest takeaway for me, apart from nautical analogies, mm-hmm. which we'll cover later, mm-hmm. um, was that strategic clarity of where to play and how to play, and who you are actually targeting. And having that clarity and being able to tell that story to the teams that you have within your organization and for everybody to align behind it is such a a fantastic tool. And then, of course, you've got this breadth of tactical tools that you can use to deliver against strategy. I think it's important because there's a lot of talk about strategy. And the one thing I always remember when I uh, listened to people talk about strategy was I increasingly had no idea what they were really talking about and uh, or what, what it meant. Like, you know, we're going to put it down on paper. What are we going to put down on paper? A sentence, uh, like an entire, like a one pager. And you and, and you'd see some businesses with like, you know, 100 pages worth of strategy. Uh, I came across a quote a while back around strategy. And the quote is that uh, strategy is the focus of multiple resources on a single purpose. So it's it's that idea of we have a single purpose. It's clearly stated. We all know what it is. And we have multiple resources. There's lots and lots of people. There's marketing people. There's the trading people. There's the pro- product and production people. But all of these people are all focused towards this one single purpose. And he talked about that quite well. So he, he talked about, as you said, the where to play and how to win. But then he talked also about how across the roles and across the positions in the business, everybody had to. Uh, everybody would look and try uh, look from shoulder to shoulder, from the e-commerce manager to the to the trading manager, to understand how they would work together to uh, push towards a single vision. And there is that element of the single vision, but within that, there is the recognition of the practical reality that. Um, we are going to have to um, implement this as a tactic. We have to execute on this. It's not enough just to say, here's a sentence, this is our strategy. What are we doing now? And that, and then he talked about the tactic, the action, and the measurement of that. Yeah, the control, mm. which I, I got very excited over the idea of um, tactics, actions, and controls. But that's that's the bit about getting things done mm. and pushing in the same direction. I also really love the idea that you know, you might get distracted and there might be another pot of gold somewhere else, but that involves a strategic change. Yeah. Don't bring that into the, resist the temptation to bring that into the broader team because that's going to be really confusing. Yeah. And what, what strategy does is it gives the teams the tools to know where they're going. And I, I think that clarity was so evident in some of the examples that he gave around Gymshark. 
Yeah. Really enjoyed that. Mm. There was actually uh, something that I, I, uh, I was speaking with him about as well. Um, is the the whole idea of an offer architecture was something that I hadn't come across before. Like obviously, I've heard you talk loads about pricing architecture and and that that area. But he was so, he 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 spoke about offer architecture, and we didn't get into it in the podcast. But the offer architecture had four principal points: um, the uniqueness, so it's something unique about the product that you're offering, the brand. How does the product uh, support the brand and what you're trying to do and what the story is that you're trying to tell? The social proof, so the elements of who else is using this and how how are they benefiting from it, and the actual offer itself, the price point, scarcity, and things like that. So it's just kind of like an idea of an offer architecture, um, which I thought was really really clever, and um, it's very impressive how he has these, you know, from the tips of his fingers, these whole kind of like uh, he has all of the models, but is also still able to kind of bring this back to a practical example and talk about, you know. Um, I mean, certain things like, let's say, Audi, he talks about a little bit about the uh, the emblematic design. So the, so the the idea of the Audi, the lights on the back of an Audi now, where when you when they turn on the indicators and the LED lights kind of... They do uh, that flashy out. thing. Yeah. So you can tell, you know that that's, that's an Audi from like, from miles away. They're, they're, they're in front of you. You know, that's an Audi in the distance. I learned a lot in that area. I think the offer architecture, that, that just really practical, let's say, experience, that lived experience that he's able to bring to this this area and how that feeds into the tactics and how that then feeds into the driving on of the strategy. I thought that was fabulous. So you've got that offer architecture there or proposition architecture, if you like. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I really, really enjoyed was having, he has practitioners on his team. So they have felt that empathy that all of us have felt at one stage. It's one thing when the Shopify buildings it's the other thing when it doesn't. Yeah, he had a story there. <laughs> and I, uh, we didn't get it. We didn't get a chat. I mean, we, uh, but I could see him. You know, he obviously was remembering something in his past. We've um, all been there where <laughs> we think we've done absolutely everything right yeah. and we are expecting something to fly and it falls flat. And you need to go back and actually ask those questions of was it really aligned to our strategy correctly? Is it the right customer? Was it promoted in the right way? Uh, did we actually have availability? I think anybody who's listening has probably been in that awful position where you've um, where you, you run a big promotional piece of activity, yeah. and then bam, all the inventory's gone, gone within seconds, and you're just sitting there with traffic. Everybody, well, you're sitting there with complaints and customer service and social media saying, "Well, he never had it anyway." Uh, they, you know, they're they're just uh, tempting us in here with their lies. Uh, but we could probably do a whole show on the various horror stories that we have experienced over the years. We probably uh, won't. Well, would people listen to us? Uh, <laughs> what about the? Uh, I, I love the pirate captain, the maverick, the guy, arr, the guy, yeah, the guy in the back of the ship with the pa- <laughs> the, the parrot on his shoulder. Nautical <laughs> analogies are definitely off. Thing. I think there's two things that have come out of this season of the podcast. Um, one is brilliant nautical analogies, mm-hmm. of which like more boats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do like the idea now of uh, a patch and a pirate, a patch and a parrot, a pirate with a patch and a parrot. And then jolly good. The other theme that sort of that has come is brilliant basics. Absolutely, everybody yes, that right. we have spoken mm. to has talked about brilliant basics yeah. and doing this really, really well. And this is the 
key to unlocking creativity because if your basics are brilliant, yeah. then you can do all of the other cool and, stuff and, and with you, your parrot. You know, in reality, uh, it is, it's a hygiene factor. You know, it's nearly table stakes nowadays. You, you have to be able to come to the table. You want to play the game. You have to be able to do the basics brilliantly. So you need to focus on that. Remember to come back to it again and again. Because uh, otherwise, uh, you, you don't. Have, if you don't have, if you don't have that level, you don't have that platform to, let's say, to start off of or to scale off of. H- how are you going to implement something beyond that? It's like the opportunity cost mm. of it, though, isn't it? That where are you spending your time? You have a finite amount of time mm. during the week, and if you're spending all of that time putting out fires, fixing problems, you're not spending that time on. Things that add a bit more value, and to be quite frank, are a lot more fun. Yeah, the basics should be easier, but they're really, really difficult. <laughs> they are really difficult. <laughs> and on that note, yo ho ho, me hearty. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much, Gordon, and thanks to everybody for listening. Um, delighted to have you once again uh, on this episode of Functional and Fabulous. Thanks, Jeff. Bye. You've been listening to Functional and Fabulous with Jerk Johan and Gordon Newman. If you'd like to know more about the podcast or about Studio 49 and Omnichannel Stories, please go to functionalandfabulous.ie. Our sound engineer was Elaine Smith, and the show was produced by Roger Overall. <laughs>